Good morning, everyone. So Richard Poindexter, who I don't know if he's here today, but he asked me to come and give a testimony to talk about reducing our debt for our building. So I wrote something down. We'll see if I can get through it. I think I can. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Deidre Nunnally, and I have actually been a member of this church twice. The first time was about 27, 28 years ago. Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's a big number. Um, and this church at that time walked me through, us through, a very difficult path. Our apartment burned down and we lost pretty much everything. And this church was here for us. They stood with us, they comforted us, and they supported us more than I can even describe to you. Um, so we left for a couple of years, and then when we came back about 20 years ago, there was no doubt. No matter where we lived, even if it was in Apex, North Carolina, we were gonna come to church at Yates Baptist Church, and we have. I truly believe what Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 tells us, and I'm gonna to have to read that to you. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Think about the services that Yates brings, not only to us, but to the community. Families moving forward, our Yates youth as they go to Passport, mission trips, open table, Child Development Center, these are just a few of the services that our church offers, not only to us, but to our community. Each of us needs to be in prayer and really decide what we are willing to gift the body of this church so that we can reduce our debt and continue to worship in this beautiful sanctuary. Thank you all. Ted's so excited to sing some more. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the privilege to join in this space, virtually and under this roof, to open our lives, along with our mouths and with lungs filled with air, proclaim our joy, our honor, our praise, and our delight in your grace. For it is your grace that has brought us this far. It is your grace that we trust leads us home. And trust is hard to come by. So many of us, dented and bruised and wounded by the experiences of this life, no longer can extend our arms again in the vulnerability that shows true trust in others or our circumstances. But teach us in our worship today that in opening ourselves completely and fully to you, instilling our spirits to hear your voice, in opening our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your presence, we might know beyond any self-doubt that you are with us, 
you are for us. And in Jesus, you have provided us everything we need to make our way in this world with you. It is Jesus who taught us that if we had faith but the size of a mustard seed, mountains could move before us. We pray humbly, gracious God, with the boldness of children, that that faith might be granted. That we, as your people, might demonstrate faithfulness to a watching world they might know that we are different because of what you have done. Forgive us when in our sin, in our frailty, in our short-sightedness and self-centeredness, we have abandoned that call. And free us in your forgiveness to joyful obedience that the worship that is celebrated so fully here might be a worship that we share each and every day. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand on this one. Let's sing together.
of God when they gathered for worship so many centuries ago as they sang out of the ancient hymn book of Israel the songs of hope and promise that we find in the Psalms. I wonder if it was as vibrant and if it was as enthusiastic as I heard you all singing this morning. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your whole selves to worship. Two excerpts of scripture from the Psalms that we'll read today focusing on the message of trust and singing our trust before God and before one another. The first, perhaps the most familiar psalm to you. Psalm 23 is a psalm that is most often requested of me, not in times of joy and exuberance, but instead in those times when we need to hear the most, God's got you. Psalm 23. I memorized it as you did if you were taught to memorize it in the old King James English. And though it's about the only time I still use the King James with, a, with ironclad consistency, um, I'm going to share this with you in that beautiful poetry. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures and leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup, runneth over surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever and we're pairing with that psalm today psalm 131 a very simple and brief poetic meditation but before i read the scripture to you I'd like to read you something that I bumped into in an article by David Paulinson that I ran into this week. And he created what he called the anti-Psalm 131. So I want you to hear these words and see if this is the life you want. The anti-Psalm 131, a song of descents of Christopher. Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself, and my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless and relentless with my demands and my worries. I scatter my hopes onto everything and everybody all the time. Is that the life you seek? Or might Psalm 131 speak deeply now to your own hearts? Psalm 131, a song of ascents 
of David. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. May God bless the reading and the hearing of God's word today. Well, today we're going to center for a few moments in reflection around simple and profoundly far-reaching, very sacred poetry. And it's deceptively simplistic, I think, because in the way that it connects God with us, we don't even know it's happening until the very brief melody that is sung to us is complete. It's something poetry does really well. It's something I think music can do. I was joking with Ted this morning. I said it was a profound realization and a very helpful one as a pastor whose responsibility is preaching to realize that a good number of folks don't come to church for the preaching. <laughs> they come to sing. They come to be a part of it. He said, well, some people don't come for the music. And he was just trying to be nice. Because there is something about verse and poetry that brings a great deal of information to us in such a compact and personalized way that reams and reams of paper on which we might print our prose. It just can't bear the freight in the same way. And so it's so wonderful today that we were able to sing so many hymns, these familiar songs that many of us were raised with that we don't hear very often any longer in contemporary church. We could sing them all today, and you all sang them with enough vigor. It reminded me of the deep truth that a friend of mine who taught voice at Meredith for years, she was a member of my church in Raleigh, and she said, people always feel better after they sing. And she looked at it in, through two lenses. One was the soul enrichment that inevitably comes when we sing a song from our heart, but then also the physical exertion of standing, of taking deep breaths, of breathing in the fresh air, and exhaling the bad. It's no surprise that probably I feel best throughout the course of my entire week after orchestra practice, because I've had to blow on a horn for an hour, and my lungs have been filled with fresh air, and all the bad's been exhaled. There's something powerful about singing our music together. Psalm 131 is one of those psalms that calls immediately to mind the experience that I know they're going to be sharing even today, the road trip. Those of you that have had to travel in cars with children know how difficult that can be because children have no frame of reference for their travel. Living in the ever-present world of children, they can't gauge landmarks. And you as a driver, you as an adult, might be able to look around and say, oh, good, we are halfway there. That's what used to happen traveling to my grandmother's house. We'd stop off and make a little turn in Gordonsville, and there was a tasty freeze there. And when we saw the tasty freeze, my father said, that is the halfway point. And so for adults, they say, oh, good, we're already halfway there. For children, it's like, we're only halfway there. It can seem like an eternity. 
But with children, a psalm like this comes alive. Because what my parents did was try and bring us into the present and out of our own preoccupation with the journey by maybe singing a song or pointing something out. I did it with my own children. We grew up in the, the Veggie Tales generation, so we had several CDs with these kind of classic sacred songs. And children being children wanted to just sing one over and over and over again. So for us, it was Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber singing Kumbaya over and over and over again. When we would go on youth trips in my generation, that was a generation when teenagers had those enormous hunks of steel they called a boombox with great big speakers that required their own kind of power station, you know, 12D batteries to fuel. And we'd sit in the back of the van and we'd listen to Stairway to Heaven over and over and over again and argue with my youth minister about it. Because we said, they're talking about heaven, and she's like, it's not about heaven. And we would, uh, we would go back and forth, singing it over and over and over again. That's why I'm really glad that Danny enforces what he calls a digital Sabbath on these trips. In our modern day, very often we put the earbuds in, we become centered on our phones, and we can just sort of shut out everything. No longer engage one another and rely on the resources of creativity and imagination. It's all just right there. So I pray that the song they choose to sing on the journey is one that Danny can tolerate for three hours. Because they'll probably be singing it. Imagine now, here with Psalm 131, a psalm that's called a psalm of ascents. It's a pilgrimage psalm. It's a song that people would sing on their way to a festival as they leave their little tribal areas of Gad or Naphtali. They get in their carts, most of them probably on foot, making their way slowly, methodically into the city, up the steep climb into Jerusalem singing their songs. Somebody turns around and starts singing, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. Sing it with me. And they sing over and over again. And as they sing it together, the journey and the destination are no longer two separate ideas, but instead they begin to converge. Worship isn't what will happen when they arrive at their destination. Worship is what's happening all along the way. Worship is what happens when they arrive. Worship is what happens while they arrive. Worship is indeed what happens that carries them there. And so this psalm, this psalm for the journey, is intended to invoke a sort of childlike wonder, a childlike humility, not childish. There's a big difference between childlikeness and childishness. Learn that difference. But have you ever ceased to be amazed at the way children can look at even the most ordinary of things with a measure of wonder? I remember very distinctly one of my children who will be unnamed, though he's not in the room, circling around his toddler potty in the bathroom, just sort of looking at it for a long time. It was empty, it was clean, it was sanitized. He looked at it, and it's got one purpose. We taught him what that purpose was until he reached down and pulled the little 
seat out of it and put it on like a hat and started wearing it around like uh, Lord Fauntleroy or something. They will look at even the most ordinary of things and express a deep wonder. I've sometimes talked about my father, whom I admire. He's a scientist, he's a research scientist by, by training. And his PhD is in physics, which I always found to be just astounding. I found his dissertation one time in his office and was looking at it, it was just equations. Occasionally a little text that said like example one, but otherwise equations and looking at it, and then, you know, my father saying, you're holding it upside down. I, I had no idea what I was looking at. But as obscure and technical as some of his interests may be professionally or that questions that he's explored, the thing I see he gets the most delight out of is opening up an introductory textbook and reading in the simplified language of introducing someone to a new subject, the whole body of all of that research that's expressed in the simplest of language. He has eyes to see all of the experiments and all of the things that led to a simple declaration maybe about the nature of gravity. And it's with wonder that he can look at the simple ideas and not neglect the nuance and the power of all that it might represent. I'm finding the same thing now at this stage in my career while I still like to kind of go off into the, the, the side weeds sometimes and study something that's particularly technically significant. What I really am finding joy in now is coming to those powerful, simple declarations about life or about faith. In the beginning was the Word. And I can talk about the Greek, or I could talk about the history, or how this theologian or that commentator might have spoken to it, but at the end of the day, all of that comes underneath the power of the Word itself. Can we keep that sense of wonder in the everyday, to be able to look at what God is doing and simply say, wow? Anne Lamott taught us that there are three basic prayers that a Christian can pray. The first is help. The second is thanks. And the third is wow. Wow. In my life with God, I'm finding more and more wow. Even as I've talked a lot about God, read a lot about God, tried to preach about God, now more than ever, I'm beginning to rest in that mystery of the transcendent God who has come close, who is eternal and yet imminent, animates the entire cosmos, and offers me and you eternal life. God who knows all of us by name. And I'm looking at you, Gail. And Gail. And Gail. But it's not just Gail. It's Christopher and Jim and Glenda and GK, Clara. All of your names. That psalm that we paired with this Psalm 131 today, Psalm 23, is so familiar. And yet, when we stop to think about the setting for that, presumably someone who knows a thing or two about sheep, probably about shepherding, professionally knows how sheep operate. And at the end of the day, 
can sit back in stillness and reflect on how this experience discloses a deep truth about God. Can you imagine that shepherd sitting on that same old rock, same old sunset, keeping an eye on that one sheep that likes to go rogue and go down into the valley where all the predators are, and sitting there and having sufficient stillness of heart to be able to pray and to reflect, even while vigilantly living your life out in the world, that receptivity, that's trust. Being able to see God at work and trusting that God is sharing a bit of God's self with you. That's the picture that's painted for us today of a spiritually mature person. It's compared to a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. An unweaned child, of course, is a very noisy child. Those of you who have been there know how relentless and demanding a child who has not learned to trust that the nourishment will come. You know how disturbing that is to the entire family. That child will make noise and will continue to make noise and make everyone miserable until they find instant nourishment and instant relief. But the weaned child has learned that the presence of a mother is more than the immediate gratification of a desire. The weaned child is capable of being still. The weaned child is capable now of a different sort of relational communication with his or her mother. That weaned child has entered into a new relationship. The mother is more than one who simply exists to gratify a need, to take away a hunger. The mother has become a person, and not just a need meter. How do we view our relationship with God? Can we in trust, be still enough to hear how God might be sharing more of God's self with us. After all, weaning is not a very popular experience, at least for the one being weaned. Children never seem to volunteer for it because it is costly and it's painful to release our sense and need for immediate gratification and our unfulfilled desires. But it is a mark of maturity and a maturing soul that's still on the road, even if it hasn't arrived at its destination. If you can say, I have learned or am learning to be still in my heart, then that spiritual weaning process can begin to take effect. How did Jesus say, seek first God's kingdom and all of this that you worry about? It doesn't go away, but it comes underneath and behind and around you in a way that becomes livable, workable, survivable. But in order to seek that unseen thing that Jesus called the kingdom, you have to trust him. And you have to take steps that feel awfully risky and sometimes painful. Ultimately, these psalms that we share are about trust. They express their trust in God and they invite us, they invite you, they invite me to trust God as well. I've talked some about the superscriptions, the little, uh, the little words that begin the psalm. This one is a psalm of ascents, which I described. It's also called a psalm of David. We don't know if David wrote it or if it's about David, perhaps. In my imagination today, 
I'm thinking about David crouching and hiding in a cave with a few of his bandit friends trying to keep their necks out of Saul's reach. They're scrounging to eat. They're complaining to one another as they run in fear. And maybe it's there in that cave where most of the light's now gone out that David finds himself stuck. Stuck between the promises God has given him and their fulfillment. Maybe you know that place. You are persuaded beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is bringing about something in your life, but you're not there yet. That place between God saying, I will do this for you, and God actually doing it. Maybe David is there. Maybe you are there too. Stuck there. Maybe losing faith. It's hard to trust a God who would leave you hungry in a cave. And at some point, quietly, David starts to sing. David starts to worship. He's far away from anything we might recognize as church or temple or community of faith. He sings about how big God is, about how good God is. Big and good and beyond anything that he can understand. He sings. He knows he doesn't need to understand now. It's enough in this moment to be held by God. It's enough to open his life up enough, maybe even to hear God singing over him, enough to hear God saying his name over and over and over again. David sings and he sings and his faith begins to rekindle. His hope comes back. His heart grows still and he's satisfied. There are other things, of course, stuck in that dark place with him. There are people and they're arguing. They're debating about the best way out of that mess. But one by one, I imagine they can only grow a little quieter as they hear him sing. They listen. And then David says, hey, why don't you sing with me? And they do. Will you? Will you?